Every day, people all over the world make the incredibly difficult decision to leave their homes in the hope of finding a better life, a safer life, someplace else. Now, that journey can be planned in advance, or it can be the result of tragic spontaneity. But either way, we know that people who are refugees, asylum seekers and migrants can arrive at their destination with complex physical and mental health needs. So in this episode, we're going to be looking at how the health and care system responds when someone arrives in England and what barriers these communities can face in accessing healthcare services. I'm Severin Andersiva, your host for this episode, and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we talk about the big issues in health and care. I'm pleased to be joined by three great guests, Inesh, Fari, and Karma. Could you please introduce yourselves? Yes, hello. My name is Ines Campos-Matos. I am a public health consultant uh, and I am Deputy Director for Inclusion Health in the Office for Health Improvement and Disparities, which sits in the Department of Health and Social Care. Thanks for having me, Siva. My name is Farisa Edzemwa. I'm a mental health nurse, but in my local community, I'm also a health champion and a community journalist. I think today I'm more focused on community health champion and as a migrant. Thank you, Siva, and thank you for having me today. My name is Kama Petruchenko. I work as a policy and research officer at the Refugee Council. We are a national charity working with refugees, people seeking asylum, people who are refused asylum. We have been working with these groups of people for over 70 years now. Thank you, everyone. Really good to meet you all. Now, to be honest, this is a policy area that I know relatively little about. So please help me gain some foundational knowledge. And at the top of the episode, I mentioned refugees, asylum seekers, and migrants, but there's a danger in using these terms indiscriminately or interchangeably. So perhaps, Karma, to start off with, could you could you talk me through what these different immigration statuses mean? Absolutely. That's such a good question, Siva, because it can be confusing. So a person seeking asylum is someone who has left their country of origin and formally applied for asylum in another country. And this application has not yet been concluded. So in the UK, once someone's asylum claim is fully considered, such a person may be confirmed to be a refugee, get humanitarian protection or have discretionary leave. I would like to add here, because this might be interesting, to know uh, that each asylum claim has to be properly investigated. A refugee is a person who had to cross the national borders because they need to seek protection. They have a well-founded fear of persecution. And the definition of who the refugee is is set out in Article 1 of the 1951 Refugee Convention. The important thing to note is that unlike someone who chooses to migrate, refugees have to flee to protect their lives. So it is not a choice for them. And many want to return home once it is safe and possible for them to do so. So in the UK, we have refugees who are resettled under the UK resettlement programs, and we have in-country refugees. So those who claimed asylum and those claims for asylum were accepted. And a migrant is someone who decided to move to another country for reasons other than because they require protection. So, for example, they decided to move to another country because they want to find work. Thank you, Karma. There might be some things that are common across all the groups we discussed, but you've already highlighted the dangers of treating different, uh, different people in different communities 
the same, which I think is something we'll come back to. And while we're talking about assumptions, Farry, thinking about our focus in this episode on health and care services, in your day-to-day work, what are some of the common assumptions you run into about how these different communities use the NHS and other health services? What do people think is going on? My experience and observation is that there's a tendency of um, a lot of people assuming that everybody that is not British is an asylum seeker. That is actually quite detrimental because then you get viewed that way and even the expectations by communities will be as such. Everybody then believes that you are here seeking to take one thing or the other and you've got nothing to contribute and in terms of health services a lot of people actually believe that you you do not qualify to get health services that is in terms of general public even though there's laws um, that the government has in terms of health services the bulk of general public don't actually know or understand it Thank you, Fari. And I was really struck by a word you used in there, which was take, and just how often sometimes the debate about these communities can be framed as what are they taking from the resources of England? And actually, when I talk to people in the service, I'm struck by how much these communities can bring both to wider economies, but also to the delivery of healthcare services. So I was wondering if anyone on the panel had uh, more of a sense of what the the assets that these communities can bring alongside them, rather than just looking at this as in a sort of deficit way. Yes, we should be careful not to think of migrants as one homogenous group to start off with. I think we need to be aware that the vast majority of migrants who come to the UK are actually young and healthy and so do not, uh, and in fact, healthier than the general population in the UK. So it would be unfair to think of them as taking away as a population group from the healthcare system. Of course, some migrants we know are particularly vulnerable and will have been exposed to terrible conditions before they came to the UK, and that puts their health, physical and mental health, at risk. But luckily, that is the minority of migrants that the UK has. And from a personal experience, I mean, the UK is one of the countries with the largest proportion, or it has quite a large proportion of people born abroad, working in the health system here and having worked in Portugal, a country where where the proportion of migrants is actually a lot lower. I can really see and feel the benefits of that diverse healthcare workforce around me, the variety of thought, the variety of opinion, the variety of experiences that people bring to the health service. I think is a real asset to this country. I think we've already started pushing through some of the assumptions and and let's keep doing it. Let's talk about reality rather than assumptions. We're talking at the top of the episode about how people who come to this country can sometimes present with quite complex physical and mental health needs. What do you see in your day-to-day work? What are some of the health needs that these communities are presenting with? Could you paint us a picture accepting that it won't be one homogenous picture. Absolutely. Those groups are different and everyone's needs will be slightly different even if they are considered to be a refugee. People are coming from different 
countries. Um, there are different reasons for why they've claimed asylum, but overall, the majority of them um, experience traumatic violence, discrimination, and it has a direct impact on their health. There might, if they were subjected to torture, the bodies will carry the evidence of what they've endured and it stays with them for life. And some of those injuries that they were subjected to, both physical and mental health, injuries will stay with them for the rest of, of their lives. So it's really important that we address and understand the needs of those populations. What we are seeing through our direct work with refugees, with people seeking asylum, is that definitely mental health is one of those areas where more support is needed and specialist support uh, because uh, refugees present with complex trauma, which is usually quite different to what we see across general population in the UK. It is because of what they've experienced before coming to the UK but also experiences of going through the asylum process in the UK, which is which is not easy and actually can be quite a traumatic experience. So without those dedicated and specific provisions in place to help them, it is really difficult for them once they are confirmed to be a refugee to start rebuilding their lives and contributing to the society. And they are very keen to do it. We have a project called Building Bridges at the Refugee Council, which is really quite fantastic, where we work with health professionals, with refugees who were working in medical services in their home country, then they had to flee. And we help them to find their feet and be able to work in the National Health Service. And they are very keen to do it. And, you know, every other person you, you speak with, they say, like, they want to give back what they've received. They want to make our communities better and use the talents they have to, to be able to do it. I thought it was really powerful how you were saying, yes, people come, come to England with perhaps complex mental health issues, but the way in which they're received, the way in which the process then works for them can either add to those issues or hopefully, you know, it, it has an impact. It has an impact how you're treated once you get here. A lot of them, they actually come without realising that they have health issues. If I take my personal experience, I came in a state of flee to survive and believing that as soon as I was able to land somewhere where I felt safe, then everything would be all right. I come from um, Africa where mental health illness is something that is not even known. Yeah, I came, I had depression, didn't even know I was depressed until I came to this country. That in itself may have added a few other health conditions because you think, I'm okay, give me a job and I'll be all right. And then in that process, somebody says, actually, you have a health issue that you need to address first. So you then have secondary trauma in the way you're being received when you arrive. And I see that with a lot of migrants, especially from Africa, because a lot of them are actually running away from abuse, be it domestic, social abuse, war and hunger. Those things, when you look at them at face value, Solution is very clear. I'm hungry, feed me and I'm okay. I'm stressed, give me something to do and I'm okay. Even if I know that I have a mental health problem and I know the cause, 
sexual abuse, domestic violence, remove me from that, and then I'm okay. But it's not that simple, is it? So you're not really prepared for the intensity or, or the degree of impact that we then bring to society. And I guess that makes me, to a certain extent, understand why then we are viewed as takers. Because there's that revolving door where you're going into health services and they believe they've given you the services that you need so you can move on. But then you go back home and you find, actually, no, that has not helped at all. It costs a lot of money, but that service that you've given me is not helping me. So then I tend to think if there was a general acceptance that migrants are bringing both problems and skills, there would be a way of strategically placing migrants with the right skills to deal with the challenges that the other migrants are facing. There would be a win-win kind of situation. This is why I decided to become a community health champion in my community. I try to reach out to those um, migrants that are struggling to fit into services. So we cut out this revolving door. When you look at health and you realise that health is viewed in such different ways across the world, and it's not just how people look at health, it's then also how health services are organised. And that is something that we really struggle with sometimes. So this concept, for example, that the UK has of a GP, a primary care physician that will see you first and that will, will then refer you to specialist services. In many places of the world, that's not how health services work. In many places, people go straight to the specialist, they go straight to the ophthalmologist, to the surgeon. And that sometimes really leads to misunderstandings in access to healthcare. So uh, migrants will get unfairly accused of misusing services or not appropriately using them. But at the end of the day, it's just a question of communication. It's just a question of telling people and having that information out there in a way that people understand that their front door to the health system is with GPs, with pharmacists and with other primary care services rather than through hospitals directly, for example. But I, it, I think it's a fascinating area and it's very, very interesting how it reveals uh, the different perceptions of health across the world. I think that's really important. And to be honest, as someone who's spent a large time of their life in this country, the healthcare system is incredibly hard to navigate as it is having, having grown up here. So you can only imagine how difficult it is if you're new to the country. Fari, as you were speaking, I, I was really struck by what you were saying about Sometimes people come here from terrible situations and feel like this is, this is a place of safety. And how you treat people at that critical time can be such a huge determinant, not only on their health, but also of their future relationship with England. And, and just that critical moment has really come through. We're going to take a quick break now and we'll hear more from our guests in a moment. Are you interested in the role of the health and care sector in tackling the root causes of poverty? Join us online for our virtual conference, Time for Action on Poverty, Practical Steps for the NHS and its Partners, that runs between the 19th and 22nd of September. You'll learn from practical examples of how the health and care sector has effectively engaged with partners across local government, the VCSE sector and business to achieve meaningful progress on poverty and deliver services to the most excluded in society. Book your place today by clicking on the link in the show notes. Now, I was interested in what some of the physical health needs 
uh, of the communities you work with might be. And, and in particular, it's because the research team here pulled out some figures on uh, maternal health in particular that I've got to be honest, just completely knocked me back in my seat about just how poor some of the health outcomes are for, for mothers who come to this country. So were there any other areas you thought are particularly pressured? You've mentioned uh, maternity services, Siva. That's definitely one of the areas where um, people we work with really struggle to navigate. And those experiences can be very difficult and really traumatic for women. Many of them are afraid to engage with health services because they associate health services with an extension of state, because that's how some of the countries uh, that they are coming from, that's how health services operate. Like you make yourself known, you go to see a doctor, but actually then it is being reported to security services. And we see many women being just too afraid to seek medical assistance, even at this very crucial and special time when they are pregnant, about to give, give birth, they would present at the hospital at the point of delivery. And very often health professionals, um, midwives had no prior knowledge of this woman being pregnant. So that's one kind of barrier and an issue that um, our clients are facing. Another one, and I've touched on this briefly, is the impact of the hostile environment. Um, the fact that um, the secondary healthcare is not free to for, for everyone in the UK. And it has an impact on, on people because they are just too afraid to seek treatment, even if it's urgent and necessary and it should be provided to them, uh, like when they are about to give birth, because they are just too afraid they will not be able to afford it. They are going through the asylum process, so they are very afraid they will be detained and deported. So that's a really difficult landscape to operate um, and something which is really challenging to health professionals when we work with midwives, when we speak with them, part of the sessions we run is to just raise this awareness that it is not necessarily people's choice to not engage or present themselves really late when they really have serious health needs, but very often it's just a complexity of the system which has been created in the UK, which makes it very difficult for people who don't have yet status in the UK, are waiting on this uh, decision to be made on their asylum claim to seek very often vital um, health services. And sadly, it also happens that when they seek you know, support, when they go to see a GP, when they need to see a dentist, interpreting is not provided. They are being refused registration at the GP surgeries incorrectly because they cannot provide the form of ID. They cannot provide you know, an address because they don't have those, because they are claiming asylum, they're going through a very specific process, but they are entitled to access those services. So those problems are quite complex. Thanks, Karma. And I think what, what came through really clearly is, you know, you can't just look at health and care services as if they're in a bubble and that there's a health care policy issue to solve. There's a wider societal climate, wider cultural climate, wider political climate that influences all these things. And the second thing is, just the need for balance in this debate. Even in the short conversation we've been having, we've started around assumptions of overuse of services by communities. We've talked through the complexity of the health needs these communities can have. And you've just listed, I think, about four or five really high walls that stand between these communities and the services they need. And we've started talking about services. Nesh, I wanted your perspective on 
on barriers, but but from the position of the organisations delivering services, if you're um, part of the statutory sector, an NHS trust or foundation trust or the voluntary sector, what's what's your perspective on some of the issues that organisations and service providers face around around this issue? It is the fact that people are extraordinarily busy. They have a lot of patients. We have a lot of patients for the number of clinicians that we have. Clinicians have very little time available for each patient. And patients who are who require a little bit more time can be a challenge that clinicians just find very difficult to engage with. So we do have, the reality is we have clinicians all over the country that are very well intentioned that want to help people but just are incapable of doing it sometimes. So in some areas of the country we know things for example like language line can work very well so uh, interpretation and translation services are available immediately at requests and when that works well we know that that can be a fantastic outcome for that particular migrant. In addition to that I would say that sometimes people just don't know. So we found, for example, that many healthcare professionals have very strong misunderstandings about what health services migrants are entitled to. So healthcare providers may be under the false impression that migrants have to pay for certain services when they don't have to pay for those services, for example. And that can really create a very difficult barrier for migrants to to, to overcome. A few times throughout this episode, I've used the words health and care system. That covers a panoply of different organisations, from ambulance services to hospitals to the voluntary and community sector. What are your thoughts on how well these different organisations are working together to meet the needs of these communities? I watched a video recently that was talking about the changes they're making to the way the health services are provided. And I must say, I'm looking forward to that. I think it's a great change where everything is integrated because the system before was like a maze. The first point of contact being the GP. When you look at mental health illnesses, a lot of GP practices don't really know that much about mental health which create that vicious cycle. You already can't navigate the health system. And then you are channeled to a first point of contact who doesn't even know how to channel you from there. As well, being limited by time, because the way NHS works is uh, each consultation has to be done in a specific time. Um, It used to be 10 minutes per consultation per problem. And migrants are coming with complex health issues. When you've suffered trauma, your mental health is affected. Your physical health is affected from various angles. And you're told you've only got 10 minutes and we can deal with one problem per consultation. I actually, for a long time, would avoid going to the doctor's. Because when I'm told, okay, we can only deal with one problem, all the problems that I've got are really affecting me. How do I choose? So I think the new system that is, I don't know if it's actually started, but the new integration system that's in the process of coming out, hopefully, is going to reduce a lot of these challenges that we're facing. And it's something that I would like to to be involved 
in checking how it works out. Well, sorry, without being flippant, I think if you aren't involved as a health champion, I can't see how the integrated care systems are going are gonna to be meeting the complex needs of their populations. Inesh, you wanted to come in. I think I have very high hopes for the integrated care systems as well and bringing together the um, healthcare system and local government particularly, I think will be key for migrant populations as well as other vulnerable populations who usually do require this join up of services. I was just talking to a clinician today who was telling me that even though all her patients were referred to her for obesity issues, the vast majority of them wanted to talk to her about debt and about having to go to a food bank and other issues that are completely unrelated. They were not concerned that their child was obese because of course they had much bigger issues to to consider. And we see that with many migrants as well, is that they, they might have immigration issues that they need to, to resolve. They might have other legal issues, for example. They and, and, and hopefully this integration of services will help with the referral and the services working together for patients. One example I can give where I think this worked really quite well is um, during the pandemic at the point where vaccinations were quite new, there was a lot of anxiety amongst people in terms of accessing vaccination. And what Ines was saying before, like, you know, refugees, migrants, they are not homogenous group. Um, there are different people with different opinions. You cannot really put them into one box and, and stick a label on top. So some of our clients were very keen to be vaccinated. They've understood the risks. They have understood that it is um, an effort we all have to make. But they were very scared, uh, for example, thinking about the prospects of sharing data. So like being registered on a government database and then their data being shared with with the Home Office for enforcement purposes. They were also feeling anxious because there wasn't information available which they could understand in the language they could understand. So what we've done, we initially set up those meetings with our clients, with our health befrienders who are our former clients, just to talk about those um, anxieties and um, hesitations they have in relation to taking COVID-19 vaccinations. And we invited a nurse, a health professional we work with, so she could give a talk about, um, you know, specific um, mechanics around vaccination, like, you know, typical um, kind of um, health brief on those issues. And people found this meeting very useful, but they, many of them told us, well, actually, I'm feeling more anxious after this meeting than before. And we're thinking, okay, so what we can do to help? And we had a discussion as a group. We were not deciding for people. And they said, like, maybe if someone from our own community could speak to us, maybe this would help. And that's what we've arranged. We've arranged for a meeting with people from the community saying, I had a vaccination. This is this is how the process looked like. This is what I had to do. I feel okay. I'm here with you sitting in the room. Everything is fine. And that was really powerful. So the more we engage with communities in, in a true sense of that word, the better those outcomes and plans around integrated care systems are going to be because we are not making decisions for people, have guessing what they need, what kind of messaging will reach them. Uh, but we actually engage with them to understand that, and then we plan those services accordingly. What change would you want to see in the near future to improve health and care services for refugees and migrants? What 
one change would make things better? I think in addition to the new integrated health service, one thing that I want to see changing is mindsets from both ends. Mindsets of migrants towards what to expect when they arrive in the United Kingdom. There's a tendency of um, us going to other migrants when we arrive because it's easier for me to talk to another migrant. So we go and we ask questions to other migrants who have their own personal experiences and so formulate opinions about the health service on the basis of their own experience. What tends to happen is sometimes we end up feeding each other wrong information. We very often talk about migrant health, so the health of migrants and their needs and their, their, their wants and their burden on the system. And I think sometimes I think we would benefit from moving the discussion away from migrant health and, and thinking about as migration health. Migrants are part of a community. And if they are part of a community, the community needs to be involved in these discussions as well. Most people want a health service that works the best way possible for everyone, a healthcare service that is accessible, that is accessed uh, on the basis of need, and that produces the best outcome across the population. We face many barriers, but the more we talk about specific population groups, we, the more we, we locate them as almost against each other and as almost a, a war for resources. We are not necessarily talking about a war for resources. We should be talking about how to use this resource the best way possible for everyone. So my call would be to talk about the community as a whole, to talk about migration and not just to have that focus on, on migrants uh, alone. We have to really not just say it, but really believe it, that access to healthcare is one of our basic rights. And that's how it should be seen, uh, that we cannot really live productive, happy lives. We cannot really thrive unless those um, health needs that we have are addressed and we can receive treatment when we need it. And the support that people are getting has to be holistic. Uh, we shouldn't just be focusing on parceling up different groups and perhaps creating separate systems for different groups of migrants, uh, because that's, that's, that would be really bad and that would be counterproductive. But we have to have a holistic support and understanding by speaking with people directly rather than acting on assumptions. Particularly when they think about refugees and people seeking asylum, really removing discussions and planning on health from the immigration. Because that's where we see many of the problems are coming in, that the hostile environment is encroaching into those health areas. And that's really damaging both to health professionals who have to navigate a very difficult, complex system, checking people's statuses before they can provide them with support. But it will also, I think, create some trust within those communities when they know it is safe to see a doctor. So. I think that would be a great starting point. So if we meet in the future, hopefully we'll have many positive stories to share. Well, that's all we've got time for today, folks. Thank you so much to Anesh, Kama and Fari for joining me. I learned a lot from what you shared with us, so thank you. Thank you. 
You can find the show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash chaos podcast. And you can get in touch with us via Twitter. Our account is at the Kings Fund. This episode was edited by Bespoken Media. Thank you to them and also to the podcast team for the episode, which was Emma Sheffield, Jonathan Holmes, and Lorene Chiquira. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate, and review the episode wherever you get your podcast from. It really does help, believe me. And of course, thank you for listening. We very much hope you can join us next time on the King's Fund Podcast. Mm-hmm.